would like to try and answer a question with you this morning. Um, why should we bother with the poor? Why should we bother? Uh, are Christians not sentimentalists going around trying to do good and save people and save people out of poverty and all this kind of... Isn't that just not sentimental kind of feel-good Western uh, mindset? You know, we, we're, the, we're the guys with all the stuff and we're going to go and, and do what we can to, to save people out of poverty. Is this just not Christian sentimentality? Uh, in this church, I look around this church and I see people giving themselves, giving their lives to try and help other people. I see uh, Corbis who's trying to set up ethical investment into Africa. Uh, I see Dawit who's just come back from Ghana where he's been doing work there in the, in the country that he was um, born in and trying to uplift the community. Is, is this just not Christian sentimentality? Is this just not really uh, a drop in the ocean? Why should we even bother? Well, I'd like to take you to a, a, a scripture that has completely changed my life. And I preached this many years ago, and I'd like to preach it again. Can you go with me to James chapter 2, verse 5? And we're going to try and answer the question, why should we bother? <laughs> I'm reading from the uh, ESV version, uh, so it might be slightly different to your version. James chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, my friends. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. And when I first uh, was preaching through James many years ago and I read, read these verses, uh, I wrestled with them for a long time. They really profoundly disturbed me. And so after many, many months of reading um, other people's writing and trying to understand them, I found some peace in terms of what they are saying. And uh, I must say, uh, uh, the writing of R.T. Kendall, Michael Eaton, and a guy called Alec Moitre have really been helpful to me. But the, the context of these, these verses, if you know the book of James, come after a section where James says that we are not to discriminate in any way in the church against the poor. There's no, to be no favoritism in the church. And so James says, and if you call a rich man and say, come and sit at the front, and you say to a poor man, go and sit at the back, you are wicked, and God is not in you. That's basically what James says. He, he uses very, very strong language in, in this letter. And so he's saying, in the church, you don't discriminate in any way between rich and poor. You treat everybody equally. And, and this now, this section comes immediately after he says that. So what he makes clear straight up in verse 4, he says that God has chosen poor people in the world to be rich in faith. He says it straight up, and uh, that phrase, in the world, is really, really important because it clarifies what James is saying. He's saying that God is operating in this sphere, the sphere of the world. He's not talking in a spiritual way. He's saying, no, here, in the physical world in which we live, God has chosen the poor in a special way, uh, to be rich in faith. And um, there are many people in the world, as we know, that experience poverty 
in an extraordinary way, in a way that we do not experience poverty. And just to bring a little bit of focus to what the guys have already said, I went online last night just to check out, and I googled the average median wage of people living in the UK. And so if you live in the UK outside of London, you are and doing a normal kind of job, you would probably be earning about £27,500 a year. That's what the average median wage is for someone living in the UK. If you live in the greater London area and you are working, you should be earning somewhere in the uh, region of £48,000 a year on average. Obviously, some people earn much more. There's some people that earn less. But on average, £48,000 a year. Cambodians earn £1,340 a year. £1,340 a year. About £112 a month. Uh, if you are self-employed, uh, Matt had a T-shirt on, no tuk-tuk today, but if you're a tuk-tuk driver, you will, uh, you will enjoy a slightly higher wage. Uh, one of the things that really disturbed me the first time I went was um, men my age and older, you see them from all over the world, Germans, Australians, people from, uh, I was sitting at a table, there was a guy from Yorkshire, all picking up these young, young girls and uh, spending days on end with them. Well, when you see the poverty, you can begin to understand how it becomes a matter of, econ of economics. They can earn hundreds of pounds, hundreds of dollars in one night, and the average age, if they work in a, fa in a factory, they earn 115 pounds a month. So here, this phrase that James is bringing to our attention is uh, very important. He's saying, in this world, there are these people that God, is, in His sovereignty, has chosen to be rich in faith, and generally, they are the poor in the world. Uh, and I want to distinguish, because James is not saying the same thing that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you know Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying there is if you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, something of the kingdom can come to you. If you acknowledge your need of Christ and your need of God, then He can begin to answer that need. If you do not even acknowledge your need of God, God is not going to minister to you in a meaningful way. So it's not, James is not quite saying the same thing as what Jesus is saying there. But Jesus did say this in Luke 6.20. He lifts up His eyes on His disciples and He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so in that context, Jesus, in, a diff, uh, in, in, in that instance, is referring to the physically poor and saying that there is a special place in God's kingdom for the poor. And so I put it to you right up this morning that if we dishonor the poor, we are contradicting the mind of God, we are contradicting the heart of God, and we are choosing a different kind of glory for our lives rather than the glory of God. The second thing that you can see that um, James points out in this portion, he says, actually, the people that take you to court, the people that oppress you, the people that know how to manipulate the system and get them, extract the life out of you are the rich, not the poor. And he just reminds them of that. And uh, he says, the, actually, it's the rich that defame the name of Jesus. Uh, this is very strong language, and I don't know if about you, but it makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm rich. <laughs> is God really saying all these things about me as well? Is He saying that 
I'm, I, I need to watch my heart so that I don't become guilty of these same things. Well, I hope in the next 10 or 15 minutes I can, I can bring some clarity so that we really can live our lives with, um, with passion and with meaning and live our lives on behalf of others in a way that brings life to the world and the communities in which we live. And so James uses this very, very strong language. And if you know the book of James, you'll see in other chapters he, he really does have a go uh, at people that are rich and are oppressing those that are poor. And I, I believe that that's quite simple, really, because uh, James, uh, we think that James was uh, a brother to Jesus, and he grew up in a carpenter's home. He grew up in a poor household, and he would have seen firsthand inequality of economies and how social uh, fortunes rarely seem to favor the majority of the time the rich rather than the poor. James would have seen that firsthand. And so there's some basic questions we need to kind of consider as we look at these verses. How do we understand these words that James is saying? Is God unconditionally always on the side of the poor? Are the rich by nature persecutors of others? How, how do we understand the heart and the mind of James that underlies these words? Is God calling us as believers to take sides on every social issue on the assumption that the poor must be right and that the rich must be wrong? Uh, if James is saying that, that uh, the rich, that the poor have the privilege of being chosen by God, then does that mean that actually those that have wealth that, are, that are, have means are automatically an embarrassment to God, are enemies of God? Is, is James saying that? Well, I don't think so. And I think um, if we look at the context of the whole of Scripture, what do we do with people like Abraham, who is wealthy? What do we do about people like Job, who was wealthy? And who James speaks of, if you look at James chapter 2, he speaks of them with great approval. He speaks of them as great heroes. What about the evidence of the rest of the Bible? Um, what about Joseph of Arimathea and Matthew? What about uh, Sergius Paulus, one of the people mentioned in Acts 13? What about Levi, the tax collector in, Matthew, in Luke 5? What about Zacchaeus? Are these people who are, were very wealthy in their time, not, uh, not, is it not sufficient to say that Jesus doesn't have an axe to grind per se with those that are rich? Well, I think these are the things that begin to surface when we, when we think about these things. And so I think Paul, when he says this in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, and not many of you were of noble birth. I think Paul gets it right. He gets this uh, balance right between what the gospel brings to all of us regardless of what our background is. And I believe what James is saying here, he, what he learned from Jesus, is confirmed by the rest, rest of the Scripture. And when I was struggling with this many years ago, this particular portion, uh, I read a, a quote by Alec Moiter, which really helped me understand what Jesus is trying to say here, what, what James is trying to say to here. And he says this, In many situations there are indeed two sides of the story, two sides of the same coin, but one side so far outclasses the other that it merits stating it as if it was in a class altogether of its own. And uh, so to try and explain what, I, what I'm trying to say is this. In Luke 14, Jesus says this. 
He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? Jesus seems to be saying that to follow him, to love him, you must hate your brother, you must hate your husband or your wife, your children, and you must forsake all and be Jesus' disciple. Is Jesus really saying that? No, of course not. He's not saying that. What Jesus is really saying is that our love for him is in a completely different class to our love for everybody else. That if we truly love Jesus, it's almost like um, we hate our brother. We don't hate our brother. We don't hate our wife. But the class of love that we have for Jesus, the, the, the heart to which he calls us, is an extraordinary love in a completely different category all of its own. That's what, what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you literally hate your mother or your father. But he's saying, by comparison, the way that you love me, it will seem almost like those relationships are nothing like the relationship that you have with me. That's what he's saying. And so I believe that when we read these verses of James, he's saying a similar thing. He's expressing a general truth. He's not expressing an exclusive truth. Um, the Lord doesn't only choose the poor, and it's not only the rich that persecute believers and blaspheme the name of Jesus. That is true. But what James is saying, generally, most of the time, that is true. That's what he's saying. Are you getting what, he's, what I'm trying to say? He's saying generally, most of the time, it is the, the wealthy that exploit the poor. Generally, most of the time. It's not always the case. There's always an exception to the rule. But generally, the vast majority of the time, that's how it is. That's what James is saying. And so for me, as a Christian believer, the more I read the Scripture, the more I'm convinced that God's overriding concern is always for those at the bottom of the pile. Always. Always. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at one of the great examples of this, the, the Bible that's given to us, it clearly, clearly shows that. He chooses a slave people in Egypt to call his own. He chooses for himself those that are in bondage to slavery, and he says, these will be my people, and I will take them out of Egypt and make them my very own. He chooses those at the bottom of the path. And he does that to demonstrate his great love for people. And I believe that love for the poor, the downtrodden, those that are exploited by the wealthy and by the, the, the machine of society, those people are written on the heart of God in an extraordinary way. And so... God takes his initiative always with the poor. And, and as I've said now, as he takes his initiative with Israel and he calls these people to be his own, he shows us what he's really like. And I think that's the proper background that we, sh we should see um, James's comments in. It's uh, always been true that the true people of God are predominantly less well-off, that they are prey for stronger, more ruthless people in society, who are, are wise, worldly wise, and know how to um, manipulate the legal system and the economic system of the world. It is true that God's people, the true people of God, predominantly are less well-off than others. But then we see Jesus, and we see in Jesus the true glory of God. And the, the, the Scripture wonderfully say, says of Jesus that He laid aside all of His glory that He might become a servant to us. And so, 
as we read these words of James, it's tempting to try and step aside uh, the true meaning of what Jesus is, what James is saying, and kind of sidestep the issue. But the problem, the problem in trying to do that is that the Bible doesn't do that very often. Um, it doesn't make many comparisons in the way that I've described uh, this morning, and it doesn't allow us to get away with the, that um, that easily. It's, there's no convenient escape hatch to to get out of what James is trying to say to us here. If we to truly follow Jesus, my conv- absolute conviction from the Scripture is is that we have to consistently be on the side of the oppressed, the persecuted and the downtrodden, because if we are, we start to reflect the heart of God. Uh, Deuteronomy says, uh, 10, 17, says perfectly what I'm trying to say. It says this, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, He does not take a bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless, the widows, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were all sojourners in the land of of Egypt. Now, sojourner is an old-fashioned word. What does it mean? Sojourner means a traveler. Sojourner means someone who's been displaced, who shouldn't be in that area, but he's been forced to live there due to circumstances. Do you get what I'm saying? He's talking about refugees. Grieves me that refugees become political objects. And people express their political views through how they treat refugees. The Bible says quite clearly, you, God's people, were slaves once in Egypt. You were refugees. God loved you. God took you out of your refugee status, gave you a home, gave you a hope, gave you a future, loved you, cared for you, prospered you. You love refugees in the same way. It's clear. That's what the Bible says. And we, we, we let it become political. No, compassion is not political. Biblical compassion has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with the heart of God. And my encouragement to you is that you would respond out of biblical compassion to the world in which we live. Okay? James is saying that if we live out our lives with a heart that is God's heart, we will care for the poor. And that really is an extraordinary way to live. And so he really is calling us to live generously and selfishly and live our lives on behalf of others and particularly the poor. And so I want to call you, as I call myself, and as I say these things, I'm aware that um, it's not the best way to make friends and influence people, is it? Because I'm going to offend someone here this morning. But I'm convinced of this. I'm absolutely convinced this is how we live. We live with compassion on behalf of those that have nothing because that's what God wants us to do. So I'm calling us all to generous, unselfish lives on behalf of others. And here I do want to just quote some, some thoughts of Tim Keller, who I found very, very helpful in thinking about this subject. 
Uh, and he, he, he says this, why, why should we love others? Why, why should we give ourselves on, on, on behalf of the poor? Well, simply because God has poured out His great mercy and His grace and His love and His Spirit generously on us through Jesus, and that we've all been saved by grace. Titus 3.6. Mercy and forgiveness are described as part of God's generosity towards us. God is so generous. We didn't deserve anything. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't, we've never deserved anything out of our own merits. And yet God, out of His generosity, He says, I generously sow mercy and forgiveness into your life, and everything of your past is washed away because of my Son. God is incredibly generous. God is under no obligation to give us any gift, any good thing. In fact, the Bible says that because we are sinful, we forfeit any blessing that we might have from God. And everything we receive from God is because of, of His mercy and His goodness and His kindness and not the punishment that we deserve. And that's why we speak about the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's mercy to us, because we understand how profoundly that is true. And yet here in James... God is shown to be generous in another way. James says um, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, remember this verse? He says, if you are unwise, if you lack wisdom, simply ask God, and he, he gives generously to all who ask Him without finding fault. Isn't that amazing? So God is rich in sowing mercy into our lives and forgiveness into our lives. And here, he's talking about not just forgiveness. James is talking about ministry. And he's saying that God builds up all of his people equally. He shares out his wisdom amongst God's people equally. He's not stingy. He doesn't say, I'm going to give more to one person than I'm going to give to the other. He says, I give to anyone who asks. I give generously and I find fault with no one. I give equally to all who ask. Man, that's incredible. That's also God's generosity. He doesn't find fault with us in any way. And so my point, my friends, this morning is very, very simple. Generosity in all of its forms is a measure of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How we respond to those that are less fortunate, how we respond to the poor, how we respond to refugees, how we respond to all of these things is a measure of generosity which comes from the Holy Spirit rooted in us. Isaiah 32 verse 8 says, The generous make generous plans, and by generous deeds they stand. And here, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is translated noble, generous, large-hearted, big-hearted. I don't know if I'll have an epitaph when I die, but I would love it to be. There lies interest. He was a generous man. I would love it. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that epitaph? You could see this man is generous in how he lived and what he gave himself to, not just with money, in his relationships, in how he helped others, that he tried to lift and empower others, not just himself, generosity. You see, noble-hearted people are like God. Noble-hearted people are always eager to share with others, to bless, to lift others up, and Paul says ultimately to Titus that the ultimate generosity was the cross, 
that God so loved the world that he gave his most precious one, his son, to die for us. So, as we look towards the future, I'm trusting God for an ever-increasing, joyful, fruitful kingdom ministry flowing out from this church. And already I'm so encouraged uh, to see that we are seeing something of the fruit of what I'm speaking about. And yet, at the same time, I have to acknowledge that there's a growing uh, desire and uh, acknowledgement that we need increasing noble-hearted, all-round generosity from this community to fully move into all that God has for us as a church. And that's expressed in so many different ways, isn't it? It's expressed in all sorts of ministry groups, life groups, that there's a growing generosity of spirit. And I certainly do see that, and I'm so grateful uh, to God for that. One of the privileges of traveling is that when you go and see other churches, you return, and you're always more grateful for what God has blessed you with. And I really want to say from my heart that I'm completely, completely thankful for this church community. God has done an amazing thing. And so it's easy, especially in a church, to rock up on a Sunday or to an event and take ministry and receive ministry. And that's not bad in itself, but there's something about being a joyful participant and training and helping others that is life-giving, that is radical, and that's a radical life-giving generosity for others. And so I want to call you, I want to encourage you to find a place where you can live out your calling in this church community in a small group that brings life and helps to equip other people. There's something magical in doing that. I don't mean magical in Harry Potter magical. I mean in a wonderful, transforming way. And so I want to continue to encourage you that there's there's going to be a growing need for this kind of generosity in our church community over the next number of years. We've made an exciting transition, and all sorts of things are changing. But we need... more of what God has for us so that in, in what I'm talking about today so we can fully experience what God is bringing for this church. And I want to say that I, I recognize that when things change, people can experience that as loss. Uh, and there's a real sense that um, we can begin to feel that it's things are not like they were. And because uh, things weren't like they were, they are changing. We experience that as loss. But it doesn't have to be like that. And I would encourage you not to get grumpy with each other when you see lots of change. Because change is a good thing. God is always moving us into the new thing that He's doing. And that means there's a challenge for you and I. There's a challenge to make new friends. There's a challenge to open our hearts continually to new people. Uh, And that takes a generosity of spirit. I want to encourage you with all my heart this morning to open your heart to others And so this community can become increasingly a generous, open-hearted community that is determined to find the fullness of God. Uh, There is truth that when things change, we do do see uh, some um, experience, some things as loss. Uh, We're having to say goodbye today to, um, where are they? The LaRue's, are you here still? Uh, There he is. We're going to pray for... The LaRue's, he's been transferred to Dubai, and uh, Shireen is off with uh, Craig shortly to make a new life in the Middle East for the next couple of years. Of course, that's a loss, but it's also a great change for them, isn't it? And so, as th- although we are sad to say goodbye, we rejoice with them as they go in the new adventure that God has for them. So, are you still with me? Okay, I'm finishing.
So the answer to all the things I've been trying to describe this morning, and the answer to change is to be generous in our spirits. And um, I believe that when the gospel truly is preached, the gospel truly is preached, it creates a community in which people repent quickly, forgive easily, are humble, and think of others and embrace the new thing that God is doing just as eagerly as they enjoy the old things that God has done. And so I'm really saying we need to become more and more like Jesus. I need to become more like Jesus. You need to become more like Jesus. All of us need to become more like Jesus. And for me, I'm always amazed. And someone preached on it to the, the time that we are away now. You know, Jesus, he forgave those that were crucifying him before they even repented. Doesn't that amaze you? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. We forgive people uh, when they've said sorry. <laughs> Let them first say sorry, then I'll forgive them. Jesus didn't do that. He forgave people before they even knew what they were doing. Do I get that right all the time? Most certainly not. Am I learning to do that? I hope I'm learning to do that better. Forgive those that have hurt you before they say sorry even. Forgive them in your heart. You know what it does? It frees you, and you'll be free forever if you can live like that. So we need generosity. And, of course, this includes um, sacrificial giving and stewardship of our finances. In the next couple of weeks, I will give a feedback of the second quarter of how our finances are doing. And I want to encourage you to sow generously in terms of your finances as well uh, in t in, so that we can see that God, we move into all that God has for us. And so... I want to put it to you, though, as, I, as I've been reflecting on this, that, you know, sometimes we think we need to be strategic in what we do. And sometimes, yeah, we do need to be strategic, strategic in what we do. But I believe that generosity comes from people, financial generosity comes from people who are completely in love with Jesus. Completely. Because they just know what God has done for them. And they are so grateful that it thinking about giving money becomes easy, secondhand. It's not the main thing. It's just a byproduct of what God is doing in your life. Yes? That's how it should be. And so when I give the feedback in a couple of weeks, I'm not going to beat you with a whip. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to tell you where we are and we hopefully inspire you where we need to go and out of the inside, let generosity flow. Amen? Financially, in our relationships, for the poor, for the community, for the nation, because God has called us to be those that love the poor, that He has specially chosen to be rich in faith. Amen? Probably wasn't a feel-good message this morning, but I believe it's the heart of God, and I want to encourage you with all of my heart. Let's stand. We're going to pray, and then we're going to go and enjoy each other's company. And then drink some coffee together. Can we just lift our hands? Father, I want to thank you so much for all that you've blessed us with in this amazing country in which we live. And Lord, our perspective does change when we go and see just how extraordinarily uh, fortunate and blessed we are by your grace to live in this beautiful country. And Lord, I pray the things that I've tried to share this morning, I pray, Lord, it would inspire us all from our hearts. I pray that people would not 
feel any condemnation. That's not been the heart of what I've been trying to say, Lord. I'm just trying to inspire us with something of your words that would enable us to live for others. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd come by your Holy Spirit, make these things life to us, make these things real to us, that out of the inside of us, extraordinary generosity would flow in every way that would just be a byproduct of our love for you. Lord, I trust you to do that by the power of your spirits in our lives, every single one of us, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with those that are less fortunate, and especially, Lord, as we seek to be effective in helping to uplift those that have nothing. We trust for your grace. We trust for your favor, and we trust for your provision. And we pray this all in the precious, precious name of Jesus. Everyone says, Amen. God bless you.